Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be, so find your place there. Don't stand yet. I'm going to get into the sermon tonight. Let me open with an illustration, and then we'll read the text. And I want to use this illustration more towards the end, but I want to introduce the thought before we read the text. It was a few weeks ago that Ron Dye, Brother Dye as we affectionately called him, went home to be with the Lord. I love that man, I think, <laughs> and I, I tease. I love thinking that he's home with the Lord. And Laura sang that song today, and Pastor mentioned how many people we've sent home to be with the Lord this year. Well done, my child. I love thinking of him in the company of those who have gone on before him. And, and I love thinking about the idea that, that we'll see him again one day, and that we're going to be there in heaven with Brother Di and so many others that we love. Brother Di had so many little things that he would say, as many of you know. One of them that he would say is, it's your story. <laughs> and so if you were um, maybe telling a story, and he was sitting there, and you added maybe a little extra flair or drama to it, he would laugh, he'd chuckle, you know, his dentures would almost pop out, his eyes would sparkle, and then he'd just look at you and say something like this, well, it's your story. <laughs> And the way he said that made you stop and think for a minute, like, well, it is my story, but why do I feel so discredited in this moment, you know? <laughs> and you'd sit there like, yeah, it is my story. You know, the truth is, we all have a story. Uh, it's our story. And every day of our lives, we're writing that story. And, um, and we get to tell it. He had a story. We have a story. And it's so important that we understand that our story is our story. And it's unique to us. And, and, it, and it involves other people, but it's still our individual path in life. And so I want to read this text tonight, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. If you'll stand with me, just out of honor of God's Word. And then we are going to look back a few verses in a minute after we sit down. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Let's pray tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for a good day to, that we've had together today in your house, together as a church family. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts tonight and help us to find the application that would be a help to us this week as we, we go back to work tomorrow, or as we're st still in the process of starting a new year and getting things going, and, and Lord, just contemplating uh, the life you've given to us and, and the future that we have here in this place together. Lord, our own personal lives. Um, Lord, help us to just write a good story with the life you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday morning, I preached from Ephesians chapter 3, the few verses preceding this text. I want you to invite you to look back at these. Verse 14, that Paul writes, that the verses preceding this verse, and he says in chapter 3, verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. This is a prayer that Paul was praying for people he loved. And this was the prayer, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with, with might by his Spirit in the inner man, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And it was Paul's prayer for the members at this church that their inner man would grow stronger. 
and that it would grow stronger as a result as they work towards not just knowing that God loved them, but comprehending, processing the great love of Christ. And that from that love, they would draw security, personal security, and confidence, knowing that God made them, that God loved them, that they couldn't, and they wouldn't ever be able to earn that love. It was a free gift to them. And he is focusing on this thought, and it's really a feel-good thought, and it's an important thought for us to understand as Christians that God loves us because that dictates our, the way that we think and the way that we process life. We don't have to beat ourselves up because God doesn't. Hebrews says that he forgets our sins and that he doesn't remember them anymore. And it's important for us to remember that he loves us with that kind of love. The book of Ephesians is divided into two parts. The first three chapters are good news. I mean, Paul is laying it out thick and boy, he's coming down to the end of chapter three. And this is really, really good news that God loves us. And he ends with these two verses. Look at verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. He's talking about the strong inner man that is strengthened by the love of Christ. And that kind of power that Christ has will do things through us and within us that we can't even begin to imagine or think of currently in this moment. We will be so transformed as our hearts and minds grow in His love. And He says, and unto Him be glory for that power that works in us to do these wonderful works in the church by Christ Jesus through all, all ages, world without end. And then He just says, Amen. Like, let's contemplate that. Let's stop there. Let's process the incredible power of God. As He begins chapter 4, verse 1, there's a distinct transition. Because Paul's not just now talking about the good news, he begins to speak to the Christians to whom he's writing about the implications of that good news. And so as he begins verse 1, he's saying, look, God loves you. This is so foundational. You need to understand that. You need to not just know that. You need to comprehend that. You need to spend time thinking about that. You need to let that kind of love guide your spirit and your heart and your mind. And you need to derive internal security from that and grow stronger in your inner man from that love. But now, okay, with that love, there are some implications for that. And so he says this as he begins the very first verse as he transitions. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Walk. The idea is to make forward progress. Um, to make due use of the opportunities that come your way. Um, Christ presents to us every single day opportunities to love people. Uh, to serve to grow stronger in our inner man. Your life is unique and you have your story. And as God brings opportunities to you, um, use those, leverage those. Walk is a forward progress. Don't be idle, don't, don't, don't sit passively by. Don't just watch as the world spins around you. Move forward steadily every day in growth. In your family, your relationship with your spouse and your children, your grandchildren, your uh, place in your job, in this church, in your neighborhood, and those that you're around daily, it all combines into your story. Walk forward in it. Move in a forward trajectory. Then he says worthy. It's the idea of being deserving. Have good qualities in your life. You don't have to earn your salvation, and you never can earn your salvation. You just can't do that. 
but you can work at being worthy of the sacrifice and the love of Christ. We all get frustrated when we see waste, and, and, and maybe that would be maybe ta- tax dollars at waste, or maybe the investment of love and sacrifice we made into another person's life. And we look at that and we just think, man, you're just wasting everything I've given to you. And it's so frustrating. You have, you have, you've had so many opportunities, and I've done so much for you, and you're just wasting it. Or we, you know, we give all these tax dollars, and in this area is maybe specifically, there's so much good that comes from some of our tax dollars, but there's some that we look at and go, ah, that's just frustrating to me. How frustrated might God be with the investment of His Son and His love and His continuance in, in supporting you and loving you and continuing to guide your life? How frustrated might God be tonight with some of us? Like, I, I, I sent my son to die for you. What more could you want? Right? I mean, walk worthy. Steward the investment of God that he has made and that he continues to make and will never stop making in you. And then he says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. The, vo- the, vo- the idea of vocation and calling is to call aloud. Can he, this is what these words mean. To call aloud or to receive the name. Okay. No one forced you to call aloud and to receive the name of Jesus Christ. We don't do that at this church. You're invited to come. You're invited to call upon the name of the Lord, and the Bible says, and you shall be saved. It's an invitation. No one's forcing you to do it. And if you responded to that call, and you said, okay, I call upon the name of the Lord, I received that call, that's your vocation. You called upon Him. You received His name. And if you received His name, and if you called upon Him to save you from your sin, you are the recipient of unspeakable and invaluable grace. And the challenge from this text is this. If you receive that grace, then act and live in such a way that you're worthy of that grace. Walk worthy of the calling. You called upon Jesus' name, now be worthy of that name. Be worthy of that grace with your life. Write a story. Have a testimony that when other people might speak about you, it might not be like, that guy's perfect, or he doesn't have any faults, but he's worthy. He's got a good name. He's got a good testimony. Live in such a way that when you enter the streets of heaven, the Lord might look at you and he might say, well done, my child. You're worthy. How do we live worthy? Well, in verses 2 and 3, Paul says this. Look there with me. With all lowliness and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of the peace. Lowliness is the idea of humility. Uh, there shouldn't be people and there shouldn't be tasks that are beneath you. Lowly. We're not more worthy or less worthy than anyone else of God's grace. Don't don't act that way. Don't have that kind of spirit about you. Be lowly. Be meek, controlling your passion, intentionally choosing in the hard moments of life to have a kind spirit. Like when it's really difficult, you can feel that heat rising, or you want to be snarky, and you want to be unkind, you want to respond poorly, be meek, control it. Control that response. Have control of your spirit and your passion. Long-suffering. Putting up with people when they act poorly. 
and not reacting poorly to them, forbearing, holding each other up, encouraging, helping one another, seeing that they're maybe not as strong as, as, as maybe you are, and you can be an encouragement and a help and support to them and love them and help them get along on their path in life. And I want to take time perhaps in another sermon to expound those two verses specifically because they, they really deserve their own attention. But I want to go a specific direction tonight with the word worthy. See, being worthy requires that you live a life of genuine and real Christianity. There's a lot of fake Christianity in the world, and there always has been. There was in the times of the Bible. But Christ calls us to reject that form of Christianity and to embrace an authentic and a real version of Christianity. You know, being a Christian in today's world and society, especially where we live in America, has benefits, some benefits, I should say, to it. it the label or tag Christian um, can benefit you in some social situations, some family, some political even circles. Being a Christian can make a, someone feel good about themselves by labeling themselves a Christian. It certainly is peace of mind for those that truly have called upon the Lord, just knowing that heaven is secure, like that just brings comfort and peace to me. I don't know about you. If I live like a reprobate the rest of my life, I'm still saved and I know where I'm going. When I die, I'm saved by the grace of God. There's some peace in, in that. But those aren't reasons to be a Christian. And some people live a type of Christianity that is in name only, and it lacks any type of genuineness. They profess Christ, and they may even be saved, but they don't act like Christians. They aren't truly committed to church. And I'm not talking about a scorecard like, were you here for Sunday school? Check. Sunday a.m. Check. Oh, you missed Wednesday this week. Not a real Christian. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about committing our spirit and our heart. Like behind it, pushing it forward, being committed with our finances, our intention and our heart, moving the agenda and the, uh, and the mission of the church forward. To Him be glory in the church forever, Paul said. They don't really pursue helping other people. Not really in their hearts. That's not really their motivation. They're not lowly, not long-suffering, not meek. Instead of putting up with offenses, they get easily offended and are happy to respond and let you know that they're offended. They don't forbear one another in love. Instead of encouraging others, they're in constant need of encouragement themselves. They're the ones that always need the support, and they're not giving support to anyone else. They don't try to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In fact, they pick fights, and they make things work worse in their families, on the sporting field, in their schools, and even in the church. Now, that wouldn't be anybody at Eastland Baptist Church, but hypothetically, in the world, there would be Christians like this. They're saved. But they don't even try to act worthy. They don't even make an effort because they don't even recognize it. The love and the grace and the incredible love that Paul talked about. Love that can't even be measured. He says it's just the height, the width, the breadth, depth. It just, it's just so big. And, and then there's no effort to acknowledge that in the way that they live their life, in their spirit, in their heart. See, you can't fake your way forward with Christ like you can in the world. There is an authenticity to faith 
that pictures can't represent. There's a realness that has to be lived out in our lives. And as the days and years go by, there should be evident progress, forward motion, never arriving, but a walking, a progress, a moving forward in our spirits and in our hearts and a growth. We intuitively know as children of God, those who are growing. Can't always put words to it, but we see it. We, we, we see a person and we think, yeah, they're not perfect. And yeah, they have their character flaws, got it. But there's forward motion there. There's more joy tomorrow, you know, the next day. And we see the growth and the maturity in their lives. See, worthiness isn't determined by external standards. We reduce Christianity when we make it about standards. Worthiness is determined by attitude. It is determined by outlook. It is determined by spirit. And it is determined inside of the heart. Why is authentic Christian living difficult for us? And one reason that I would submit tonight is that authenticity scares us. Because when we become authentic, we also have to become vulnerable. And vulnerability is tough for us, myself included. It's tough for us. We pretend like we have it all together. We work at convincing ourselves like we have it all together. We put up our guard, spiritually speaking, physically speaking, emotionally speaking, and we leave it that way. We don't like to admit that maybe we don't have all the answers as individuals, as Baptists, as Christians, we may not know everything and we may not be right about everything. And boy, that's tough to admit because that makes us vulnerable. We have insecurities. We have weaknesses. We have wounds in our hearts. And so instead of pretending like we have it all together, instead of doing that, we need to learn to lower our defenses. We need to learn to embrace who God made us to be, that He loves us, not the fake us, the real us, that it's okay not to have all the answers, that we're working with the knowledge that we have, and we're going forward with that, and we're working hard to please the Lord, that we're walking the path that God set before us for our church, for our families, for our homes, and for our individual lives, because it's our story. And we don't need to, be, to pretend to be someone or something else other than what God made us to be. See, being worthy requires that we live a genuine and real Christianity. But there's a second thought here. You cannot become real and genuine in your Christian faith until you're self-aware of who you really are. Self-awareness is so important to walking a worthy Christian life. It often separates those who think they're genuine from those who are genuine. And just because we think we're genuine doesn't mean that we are. And often when we think we are, we probably aren't. Too often we think we're in a good place. And sometimes we aren't. And we have to learn to see ourselves and we have to, the, the way that God sees us and the way that other people see us. And a lack of self-awareness will and does limit our intimacy with God and it limits our intimacy and connection with others, and it keeps us from a real and a genuine faith. Self-awareness by itself is really painful. 
the older I get, the harder and harder it is to look into the mirror. There's wrinkles forming. There's these things up here that keep falling out. Lily Tomlin quipped, reality is the leading cause of stress among those in touch with it. <laughs> you gotta think about that one. Social scientists say we unconsciously deny ourselves access to certain aspects of our personality because we wish they weren't there. We flexibly avoid them because they cause fear, anxiety, or pain. See, realizing who you are, coming to grips with ourselves and all of our flaws and faults isn't fun, but it is a necessary part of becoming who God intends us to be. And we have to work at keeping those blind spots in our lives to a minimum. What you don't see in yourself can hurt you. Just ask those who rode on the Titanic. See, people without self-awareness, they avoid feedback at all costs. Don't tell me what's wrong with me. I don't want to hear it. And if you do tell them, they quickly get defensive. So I think it was about a year or two ago, I don't remember exactly when, but I was in the office in the hallway. And I don't remember what I was doing, but I remember I had to bend down, or I was, I was down low doing something. And uh, Brother Andrew comes by, and he says, Daniel, you're balding in the back of your head. <laughs> and I had no idea up to that point. I literally had no clue. I don't look at the back of my head very often. And I denied it. Because I, I know it's balding in the front. I see that. Um, and uh, I was like, no, Andrew, you're wrong. Like, I can feel hair back there. No, that's not true. I got really defensive about it. Like, stop saying that I'm balding in the back of my head, Andrew. You're hurting my feelings. I got defensive. I went in denial. And it stands out in my mind. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Why would I have an instant moment of defensiveness? Well, because I don't like seeing my deficiencies and faults. My wife thinks balding's cool, so I'm going to roll with that. <laughs> Have you ever been surprised at someone's feedback of you? You think you're a compassionate husband? Now, this has never happened to me. <clears throat> and your wife suggests that maybe you're not as sensitive as you think you are. You think you're hardworking, but your coworkers might say you're hard driving. You think you're straightforward and honest. But others look at you and think you're self-righteous. You think you handle money well, but those close to you say you're a tightwad. You think you handle criticism well, but your body language stiffens when corrected and tells others you're defensive. You may think you're aggressive and productive at work, but those who work with you see in you an insatiable need for recognition and competing with them. You may think you're just staying in shape and improving your looks, but your friends are convinced you're obsessed with your appearance and vanity. See, we don't see ourselves as clearly as other people see us. They can see the bald spots that we can't see. And too often when they're pointed out to us, well, we get defensive. We push back and we go into denial. But self-awareness is curative. Once we see ourselves the way others see us, we can get on with transforming our lives and becoming better people. 
But you're never going to get there until you see it yourself. You're never going to get there until you see what your wife sees. You're never going to get there until you can learn to accept with humility what your husband might suggest in a loving spirit. Or what your parents might say to young people beyond a closed door and a heart full of concern and love. And until we can accept that kind of correction, we can't become better people. We can't transform. We can't walk worthy. We can't be genuine and authentic and real when we keep denying what others see as truth in our lives. Steven Pinker, he's, a, he's got his doctorate at Harvard University, and he said, Knowing thyself is a way of making thyself as palatable as possible to others. You want to get close to people, you want to love them, you want to make a difference in life. It's not about a position, it's not about a title, it's about working on you and becoming as palatable and as acceptable as you can make yourself to the people in your life. See, the bad parts of us aren't all bad because those are the parts that have the greatest potential for greatness. Character is hammered out not in the absence of negative traits, but in the presence of them. For instance, your struggle to overcome selfishness can make you into a generous person once you hone it. Once you work on that, once you fight that battle, God help me to overcome the selfishness and the, 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 the myopic view I have of life and of myself. Help me to overcome this. And once we work on that, there are muscles that are strengthened because of that process, which is a far better prize than if selflessness comes to us naturally. See, learning how to control, learning how to subdue the bad parts of our character and of our heart help us to make a greater impact for Christ. The Apostle Paul is the classic example. The man writing these words was a man who was killing Christians. And Christ said, nope, I can use that. Is that bad? Well, kind of, yeah. I mean, killing people's not good, and killing Christians is really not good. But, Christ, but God looked at that and said, that's a really bad thing, Paul, but I can take that zeal, and I can take that passion, and you might be committing these crimes, but I can take that, and I can turn that around, and I'm going to go to work on you. And if you'll accept my transformational efforts and my love for you, I'll turn you into something great. And did God? Of course he did. We're, we're preaching his message tonight. When we increase our self-awareness, we benefit in immeasurable ways those we love and the cause of Christ's benefits. We need to walk a worthy Christian life. But in order to be worthy, we need authenticity. And in order to have authenticity, we need self-awareness. So how do we become self-aware? Stay with me. We're getting there. You can't be self-aware without the help of two things. Without the help of Christ and the help of others in your life making you whole. See, you need reflective, productive time with the Lord for the Holy Spirit to work on you. There is a work that God can do in our hearts, but when we keep our phones on 24-7 and the noise of the digital noise of this world, the noise of the world, the busyness of our hearts racing, we crowd out His voice. We need that time with Him, wherever that may be for you. I'm not suggesting it's got to be a, a picture-perfect morning. 
I'm just saying, whatever that looks like in your life, you need quiet, reflective moments with the Holy Spirit of God to go to work in your life and begin to remove the layers of sin. In one of C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, there's a boy named Eustace, and he's turned into a dragon. And later in the story, he's invited by Aslan, the lion, who's the Christ-like figure of the story, to bathe in a pool that can cleanse him and remake him into a boy. The first thing he has to do is, is undress. And, it, and it's this idea, that, this picture of, 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 I need to let my guard down. And Eustace is confused about this until he realizes that he has to shed his old dragon skin. In other words, he has to repent. He has to confess the truth about himself. And he tries to do it by himself. But it's hard work. And it takes a long time. And he peels off the hard, scaly dragon skin. But when he does, he realizes that underneath there's more dragon skin. And he can't get it off by himself. And I'm going to tell you tonight, you can't do it yourself. God made us for community. He made us to help each other. The Bible says that iron sharpens iron. There is a process. You can't sharpen iron without the other iron. He tries to get it off and he can't. Because there's another layer of dragon skin. And he's in despair. And so Aslan says to him, you'll have to let me do it. And I'm going to quote a few paragraphs from that book because this is how Eustace describes the experience. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. If you don't spend quality time with the Lord, if you don't find those moments in your life, you are going to miss out on worthiness. There is no other path. You're going to miss out on authenticity in your Christian life. You're going to miss out on the story that you could be writing. Because the Holy Spirit of God will do in your heart and life what no other person can do and what you yourself cannot do. It is God who speaks to us. It is God who transforms us. It is God who helps us to be the men, women, and young people we need to be. And too many of us are scaly, and we don't like the scales being removed because it pierces and it hurts. But the Holy Spirit needs to do His work in our life. He has to have your attention, your time, and He has to slowly and painfully pull those old scales of sin off our hearts. See, you need quality time with the Lord. 
And this year, you need it. You need to purpose in your heart not to miss that. Sure, a day or two might go by. Let's not reduce this again to some standard here. But consistently, you need time with the Holy Spirit of God. And you need quality relationships and times with others to help you see your blind spots. We need people in our lives because we can't see what they can see. Those who live isolated are the weakest people, and they are ignorant of their weakness. They don't even know. They pull back from friendships. They pull back from relationships. They keep real surface in the church. And they're weak, and they don't know they're weak. We need the courage to solicit and invite feedback from friends who challenge us both with the words that they say and the lifestyle that they live. You need people in your life to whom you can ask a question like this. Is there anything about me that I don't seem to see but you do? And then brace yourself. And don't be so defensive about your bald spot. Simply say thanks and process that information. I have learned this. Sometimes the speaker has a dysfunction of their own and they're trying to hurt me and I can dismiss that. But often, when I've solicited it, the feedback is both helpful and instructive. And it will, if you'll allow it, guide you to better behavior, better authenticity, and to better worthiness of the vocation, the calling, of the salvation that you've called upon. Paul says this in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Now, Paul was in prison as he writes these words. He wasn't just a prisoner of the Lord. Paul was also a prisoner of the Romans. Paul's, a, Paul's just a prisoner. And he points that out as if to say, I'm setting this example. Because sometimes when you walk worthy and you do what's right and you get those things fixed, you're going to find yourself a prisoner too. Life isn't always going to go the way you planned. Kately sang about that a moment ago. But Paul was right where God wanted him to be. See, sometimes we think the Christian life is about doing something great for God. And we translate that into doing some, leaving something concrete behind. Got to be a missionary to this field. Got to build this big church. Got you know, to have this number of people. Got to have these financial uh, things uh, accomplished. But this is a false mental construct that we've erected. Really doing something great for God isn't about full-time ministry or some position. It's building intimacy and investing love. The kind of love that God has into the lives of other people. And so tonight, you might be in a type of prison. It could be a physical ailment. It could be a relational prison. But I'm going to submit to you, it might be right where God wants you to be. That's your story. It's your path. And he would ask you this tonight. Walk forward in your world, in your prison, if it is, if that's how you feel, wherever God's placed you, in your home, in your life, wherever you're at on the age spectrum and in life circumstances, move forward. Be a better person. Walk worthy of that vocation. Be authentic. Be real. Be genuine in your Christianity. Stop pretending. Stop faking it. Engage your heart. 
You've been given this great big gift of God's love and, and His grace. And you've called upon it. You've asked for it. You've invited it. And now live worthy of it. Be worthy of it no matter how awkward it gets. Be you. Be real. Be genuine. This is your life story. You don't get to rewrite it. So make it a good one. It's your story. Write it real. Write it deep. Make it authentic. Make it a good story. Let me ask you to stand tonight if you would.